Hi, I'm Khaled Keefe-Perry. And I'm Christina Keefe-Perry. And this show is On Carrying a Concern. Stories of friends in service. So as we promised, exciting thing today, we have gathered with us um, some friends who are from different pieces of the Protestant world. And we've asked them to take a listen to a few of the episodes and peruse the transcripts and listen to snippets and snappets of the first half of the season to see if they heard things different than what they were used to, if there were questions they had about what the heck it is that ministry and the Religious Society of Friends is, and or things that they noticed. Sometimes, as you folks may know, we're not always uh, the most connected to the rest of the faith world uh, and our siblings in the rest of the Christian church. And so this is an opportunity for us and for you, by extension, to hear what some folks hear in our stories. And so without further ado, what I'm going to do is invite our guests to tell you a little bit about themselves so that we can hear um, the, the context that they're coming from a little bit before we launch into some of their reflections, thoughts, questions, and or sharp criticisms. Um, so we'll start um, on my screen. We'll go clockwise. So first up is Tahina. However it is you want to kind of identify your context for a group of random Quakers who might not have any idea who you are. Um, I guess I can call myself a Ludu. I am a Lutheran Hindu. Um, so I grew up as a devout Hindu uh, in Denver, Colorado. Um, I started attending the Lutheran church when I was in college, not actually attending the church, just hanging out in their student lounge a lot. <laughs> um, and then I ended up meeting a person who just happened to be Lutheran. Um, then we got married. Um, and the pastor that married us is like, I don't just marry and bury people. Um, if you're going to make a commitment in the church, you need to know us and the community that's going to support you when you get married. So here I am attending church as this Hindu. And I'm like writing all of my observations on a legal pad in the back of the church. I'm like, y'all stand up and sit down a lot. What's with the round cracker? Why do you like dip it in this cup? Um, I, like I had no idea what was going on. Like, okay, um, y'all are about Bibles. I don't see Bibles in the pews. Where are your Bibles? Because you hit people with them, don't you? So I was baptized actually in my, uh, in my late 20s. I went to seminary a year after I was baptized. I was ordained in the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in 2013. I served my first call in Oakland, California for two and a half years. I then moved to a church in Palo Alto. For 10, I was there for 10 months. And I'm currently um, on loan from the Lutherans to the AME Zion Church. And I serve on the teaching team at University AME Zion in Palo Alto currently. And that entails doing Bible study with the preachers and being on their preaching rotation. Terrific. Thank you so much, Tahina. And I've got next Tamisha. Hey everyone, I'm Tamisha. I am currently in a slightly busy cafeteria at Fuller Theological Seminary, <laughs> writing away. They're watching the World Cup, so if you hear unexpected cheering, you know why. I grew up in a fairly Christian, it was Christian home. We believed in Christianity, but nobody went to church except me. 
even as a child. I would go, you know, sporadically, you know, with friends, but I didn't actually get involved in church until college. So I, I started to really engage in college and in my, uh, in college and in my faith and found that there was something that you can do where you can connect school and God. And I was like, oh, that's perfect, um, which is how I ended up, long story short, here. I'm really interested in just learning about other cultures and other people, specifically through the arts, um, and trying to figure out how to create spaces where we can all, you know, hang out together and learn from each other. So, a little about me. Terrific. And last but not least, Tim. Hey, my name's Tim. Uh, I grew up in a pretty evangelical household, actually, and throughout my faith journey and my various positions of ministry, I've, I've sort of migrated into different expressions of Protestantism. Uh, but now I work in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and am interested in theopoetics uh, as a lens for performing theology and, and leading communities that, that have an emphasis on aesthetics and embodiment. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm actually working in Santa Barbara with the Disciples of Christ to help an existing congregation transform into creating a new form of community for today. So we're doing some innovative work and in, in trying new models to help people uh, of faith in the 21st century be together uh, for, for peace and for compassion. So, so that's why I'm here. Terrific. And folks, um, as per usual, we'll, we'll connect you all to some of the resources that are these incredible humans uh, in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about the various folks whose voices you'll be hearing, you can check that out as usual, ocacshow.org. So without wasting any more time, um, the, I guess the first round um, would be, you know, was there anything in that what you heard that was uh, surprising or compelling or confusing? <laughs> surprising, compelling, or confusing? And if you can let us know kind of if it was a specific episode you were listening to, if there was a general question or comment you had, um, that would be useful. And then if need be, Christina or I will jump in uh, if, if we need to answer anything. I'll, I'll jump in since I had a question at the very beginning. Um, so I listened to the episode, um, Angela Harris? Hopkins. Hopkins. I knew it started with an H. Um, and just uh, listening to her story about going to Kenya and, and then coming back and getting involved with the friends. And I had a, uh, there are a couple of things that I thought were really compelling. And then I had a question. Um, I guess it surrounded the part of the conversation that uh, you guys are talking about with discernment and with being in community. And there were two things that really intrigued me. One was um, leading into quiet, quiet space. And there was some differential between leading into the quiet space and then silence. Um, and then also uh, the new word that I've discovered, leading, and the sense of, um, I was really in, just intrigued by the way in which you guys do discernment in community and the part where it's not about, well, what do you want to do? Um, that question was brought up as like, that's not the question you ask, that everybody has this equal stake in um, walking through this process with you. And it's not necessarily about what makes you comfortable or what you have a distinct passion for. And I love the, the carrying the concern aspect of that. So um, that was the first thing that I thought of. So if you want to riff off that, that'd be great. 
it's interesting the one of the the things that Angela brings up uh Tamisha you mentioned the distinction between um quiet space and silence in that if I'm remembering correctly one of the things that she was talking about was that a lot of people refer to Quaker worship as quiet or as silence but that actually it's expectant waiting worship so that there's this hope that a lot is uh, or this expectation that that the Holy Spirit will show up and things are going to happen when we're doing discernment and there was some talk about clearness committees and using clearness committees there everyone is entering into that expected waiting place not just silence and or not just you know quiet and really listening for where someone's being called uh, together. That, that's the first thing that comes to me. And, and, and part of, and I think Angela would have known this, but part of this is a historical fact that like in the early years of the tradition, being Quaker was illegal. And so when you met, you usually met like in marketplaces or on the kind of on the down low and places you weren't supposed to be. And so it, like as point of fact, it wasn't quiet. Like it, you were finding stillness. And so what happened over the centuries is it was like, we like quiet, <laughs> which is, which is, I think, uh, resonant, but it's not the same thing as listening for that still small voice, which may or may not correspond to the decibel levels kind of outside. And then the other piece of that, which is related, is that discernment is in the, the Christian version of Quakerism and the early version of Quakerism, which is the same thing, is about listening for the will of God and doing that, which may or may not be what you want to do. There's a lot of friends stuff related to the identity connected to the prophets, which is like, why me? Me? Am I, I'm supposed to do this business? Um, and so, you know, you, you hear a lot of that language echoed in, in Quaker language because it's it's your cross to bear or it's your, your daily watch. You know, there are things like that where it's like that is all of our jobs to do is to seek out that task that's been put in front of us. Yeah, I think that that, that was really refreshing just because I think so often a lot of the rhetoric around calling or what have you is about what are you passionate? What do you love? And I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but there's something that's unique in thinking about like what you guys have called carrying a concern. And it centers the spaces in which you would go and the things that you would do in a different light. And it, it is almost accepting that sense of quiet, that sense of uncomfortability that I think that we, a lot of times with the passion rhetoric, are um, training people out of. Um, that when things get difficult or hard, because it's something we're supposed to be passionate about, this can't be the space that I want to go in because I don't feel the passion or I don't feel the, but if it's seeped in carrying the concern, if that's, if the language has changed, then it's a way in which we can enter into spaces that may be perceived as difficult, but knowing that in part of the discernment, these are spaces which we are also called to be in. Um, and so I, I think that the language is, is uh, really helpful in that way. Hmm. Any riffing there from uh, Tuhina or Tim? Um, I thought it was really interesting that that there was laughter with Angela and you about like the quiet and the silence. I 
I actually was laughing along with you because I thought it was, I, I thought it was actually really interesting because Khaled, I'm going to bring up a part of our history uh, when we first met that we were in our discernment group for what was then the Fund for Theological Education in a very not talking space. I think like we had just come out of a workshop that had essentially like pretty much bruised us and bloodied us pretty badly. And it wasn't necessarily us being quiet. I think like the conversation that we're having around silence and quiet, and it's not about us, it's about what God is telling us um, to have it reframed as such. Because I think like particularly in American Christianity, there's a lot of like, I, 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 like the if then, the if then equation, if I do this, then I receive this. Like if I am quiet, God will talk to me. But it's actually really interesting to kind of then flip the script and then kind of reframe it of God's speaking. I just need to shut the hell up because I think like one of the holiest moments I ever had was God was speaking in that time at that FTE workshop. I think we just needed to shut up. Yeah. Um, a, a bounce back to that is in, in the, so if any of you ever been to kind of waiting Quaker worship, the way it works is everyone kind of gathers in silence and someone may rise and speak and offer something. And in the old days, the, the, the advice given to people was to stay seated as long as possible. You shouldn't want to stand up. It's a horrible, terrible thing to speak as a prophet. Don't ask for it. Catch you, keep your butt on the bench. And, and the quaking came from people fighting against God, asking them to give a word. So we're called the Quakers because people were fighting against the being pushed off the bench. And I mean, very few people talk about it this way anymore. Uh, Tim? Can I add just along the, the same theme that uh, as I was listening to the episode with Elizabeth Dearborn, there was a turn in the episode where she started to speak of the guidance that took her out of the Society of Friends. And I found that to be really compelling and, and resonant with what you just mentioned about not desiring that prophetic call that might even call you outside of your own tradition. So, I, I mean, as I heard that story and, and her, her own affinity for Thich Nhat Hanh and, and that modality of thinking too, I, I just found it compelling that, that there's sometimes this, this sort of guidance or clearness that can come and lead you even away. Yeah, right. I think that one of the conundrums that Quakers can get in is to be really centered on being Quaker and not realizing that, well, there's been a lot of talk about whether Quakers are Christian and part of that larger Christian stream, but is the discernment, are, are we faithful to the Quaker way or are we faithful to God? Like, What's at the center that we're listening to? And if we're faithful to God, we could get called who knows where. And what's interesting is, uh, I don't know if we mentioned it on the episode or not, but Elle is no longer worshiping with a Quaker meeting at all. Now she was baptized in the UCC church because that's where she was sent. Yeah. And uh, uh, this is an apocryphal story, which might be true. I, I don't care enough about the history to like test it, but it is a story that's told often. And, and at least some part of it is the case that Mother Anne, who is the, the founder of the Shakers, right, was a Quaker. And that we know. 
it is said in many places, and I can't historically verify it, but the story gets passed on that she essentially sought out discernment with her community to say, hey, I have this vision. I have this leading of a thing I'm supposed to do. And the thing was the shaker movement. And her meeting was like, yeah, no, it seems like you're supposed to do that, but that's not this. <laughs> and so they essentially blessed the leading, we would say, affirmed the leading and said, yes, you're being called to it and you're being called out of our meeting to do it. And that I've always thought was a really powerful vision of discernment where you're so clear as a community on, on what your boundaries are that you can affirm God's motion with no, with no prejudice, but also say, yeah, but we're, that's not us. Like we can say yes to you, yes to the way God is working in your life. And also that takes you beyond the boundaries of what we are. And, and to be able to do both of those seems to me really powerful. And we're not always great at it by any means, but I mean, there is a, something in that story that I think is very kind of resonant with what Elizabeth was saying kind of in that episode. Cool. Other things, comments, questions, themes you noticed, ways it's similar to what you know, different. Um, there's a lot of different types of committees. And so just kind of going through the transcripts, uh, a, there's um, a support community, a clearness community, an anchor committee. And so I'm, I'm very curious about this organizational structure. So um, let me just review the, the support committee, clearness committee, anchor committee. So clearness committee is the, that group who comes together to for a single meeting or a series of maybe a set of meetings to help an individual test whether something is true. Maybe to um, the most common use of a clearness committee is actually for membership and for marriage. And people, when they're applying for membership, have a clearness committee to see if, if uh, uh, to help them test whether it's right to become a member of a meeting. And then a couple will ask for a clearness committee as they get married to, to test whether they are really being brought together by God and whether the meeting is clear to take the marriage under its care. And similarly, they'll work with an individual who's maybe testing a leading for a new direction in their life or, or ministry. And then all of those other committees, support committee, anchor committee, committee of care and accountability, um, oversight committee, are mostly names for the same thing. Though support committee can be a pastoral care iteration of that committee, but support, anchor, oversight are all committees that are then formed after a clearance committee happens, and their job is to care for the ministry, which looks a little bit like caring for the minister, but is really making sure that they continue, that minister continues to be faithful to the ministry and to the work that they're doing. And so that it's a committee of the meeting because the ministry emerges out of the life of the meeting and then gets cared for in the life of the meeting. Do you want to add something, Callan? Yeah. So I think a piece of the clearness thing that it's, that's useful here is that this is all invented junk in the last 80 years largely we know that in the early generations of the religious society of friends, our communities were mostly homogenous. 
if you knew everyone shared a communal practice of prayer and discernment, it could happen anywhere. You might be down by the well or at the baker shop and be like, hey, I've been really thinking about whatever. You know, there are stories about people like praying together to figure out what field to bring the cows to. I mean, it just was like life. And that got harder and harder to pull off in the 20th century. And so while people used to gather groups of people together to reach clearness, clearness of what? Clearness on the will of God. Then they're like, oh, no, we need a structure to do this because we don't live together. And what if so we begin to call these things clearness committees, say, hey, will you come together for a clearness committee, which is like on a day, on a time to kind of help me figure out what I'm supposed to do. And the clearness word began to kind of replace clearness on the will of God just as its own thing. Are you clear? And what the clearness was is what the way forward is. And so in the ye olde schooly way, you know, like, so for Christina and I, we said, again, you're, we're testing for truth. We believe we've been married sacramentally. Will you help us tell, see if that's true? Not can we get married, but we think God has married us. Will you test the spiritual sense of that truth? That was the question, which is a very different thing than like, will you let us? <laughs> and similarly, that's how ministry works. If you feel led into something, you say, I really feel like this thing's on me. Is it? And if the community says no, you're supposed to put it down, including the marriage. If they're not clear that this has happened, that's the end of it. And that's intensely communal and very rarely lived into, but it's there. And it has has happened. I mean, not with us, but, you know, around. (laughs) Because it's, I mean, I'm always fascinated with how words are used and how words are defined and used within faith communities. I think part of it is that, you know, like going from a Hindu world to a Lutheran world and that my family is still in the Hindu world. And I have to actually like, I realize that I use coded language and I use exclusive language when it comes to my life of faith. And so I have to like break things down now for my family to a point where it's like, I can't just assume that they know like, hey, the season of Advent is the season before the coming of Christ and represents the second coming of Christ. Like I have to like lay that all out and that I can't just assumedly use the word church because not everybody is in a church. And so it's really having to like recalibrate what vocabulary is. And so like noticing that these committees are appearing a lot in the conversations that you're having, I'm like, okay, so that's a committee and that's a committee and that's a committee. And so I was trying to grasp, but like, what, what is that in trying to figure out if I could get the context from the conversations without having to Google it to see like, if there could be, if I could like be able to glean something from that. Another important part of this to Hina is also that, and, and we talk about this in lots of the episodes because it's part of the thing that comes up is, because friends have historically been averse to hiring anyone to do anything, all of the work that normally gets done in a congregation is done by teams of volunteers. And those teams of volunteers are known as committees. In the evangelical world, this sometimes gets known as guilds um, or, you know, kind of small group stuff. And that we've kind of been operating that way uh, roughly a hundred years. Previously, we had named elders, ministers, and overseers. And we got rid of the overseers because the slave association and then we got rid of the function entirely and then we got rid of elders and then we got rid of ministers and it wasn't until 
the 70s and 80s that people started saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't have done that so much. And we started a conversation again around what it might mean to talk about ministry and talk about eldership. Um, uh, other th things, questions, comments, concerns? Well, one of the reflections I had, and uh, I heard a phrase that was used earlier that, that this form of committee forming was intensely communal. And coming from a, a sort of relational perspective, uh, but also working in a mainline Protestant church, I think a lot of our Protestant traditions give lip service to communality. And, you know, it, it like it was already mentioned earlier, also this, this high emphasis on individualism that's a part of, of the Protestant salvation narrative. Uh, and so I just wonder, we, we do have, you know, boards and elders and, and different ways that people can serve in guild type, type scenarios, but... I just wonder what what letting some of that intense communality uh, infuse into Protestantism would look like, and not that that's what we're trying to do right here, but but I just wonder what we would have to to learn from the the Quaker tradition in that regard. I'd be curious to hear from Tahina um, or Tamisha if there's any thoughts on that before we run our mouths. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's a good question. Um, I guess when I think about, um, Tim, some of the ways in which Protestantism is very individualistic, I think about uh, some of the churches that I've connected with, Black churches, other churches or, or communities of color, um, where the sense of community is so embedded culturally that there isn't a, a necessarily a separation um, when it comes to how we gather and worship. So I'm wondering, in addition to how the Quaker tradition is really seems to be really intentional about this intense communality, what ways in which this conversation, there are things that we can learn from the Quaker tradition, but there are things that already exist um, within Protestantism that we've marginalized. And so I, I think my only caveat with the question is, yes, let's think about that question, but let's also think about the ways in which those spaces of intense communality exist. They just look different. So if the disposition is, and the posture is learning, I would say, where are we learning and, and to which people are we giving more authority to teach us? Um, and I'm curious to know how this sense of intense communality unfolds in other aspects of friends' communities, particularly as it relates to other communities, communities of color, um, other marginalized communities. Are there different expressions of the Quaker tradition in those communities that the Quaker tradition generally is learning uh, on this sense of intense communality? And how have they navigated those relationships with those other communities as well? I think that for Christian theology, like it is a communal theology. Um, but I think like as time has progressed in the sense of embodying it has become really, I don't want to say distorted, but like it's become that the means of how we do it and which we do it has become really diverse and different. And I think it's also been commodified and commercialized, um, particularly in the American church and it's been colonized. Um, and so I think like there is an ability to do community well, but I think like looking at it as, um, as a Lutheran pastor, um, 
that like we live, at least Lutherans live in a small world. And so we have like our siloed congregations in which we think we do community well. And then we have like our regional things in which we think we do community well. And then we have like our national body in which we don't do it well. Um, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna be like Martin Luther and like, let's just call the thing the thing. In like reading the website and in listening to the conversations, like there isn't, there is more of an intensity of community and just wondering it's like how far does that intensity go like within like a um kind of like within face to face like within a same building regionally like how how does this communal relationship work out because in listening to Angela's interview like the Quaker experience for her was different in Africa than it was in the United States and so it's like even having to culturally communicate your own faith expression with another person that has the who identifies as the same faith expression like how does that community live and foster there's a lot it's uh it's so interesting i'm i am struck by tamisha's question about are there different expressions of quakerism in communities of color and marginalized communities and different communities and in north america at least Quakerism, unless it's the evangelical flavor of Quakerism, is, I don't know what I would put it, percentage, 90. Whiter than the Lutherans. Yeah. They're extremely white. Um, then, And then you have evangelical friends in in North America, the fastest Spanish, growing. Spanish speaking. Spanish speaking um, friends. So that's the largest, or I mean, the fastest growing community of of. Quakers in North America are Spanish-speaking Quakers. And then if you were looking globally at Quakers and you were going to like pick who, what the, your median Quaker looked like, it would be a Kenyan woman, an East African woman. So the largest concentration of friends uh, is in Africa and Bolivia because evangelical friends were really good at mission. So Angela's experience of coming to friends in Africa was coming to a very different kind of Quakerism. I want to go back to something that Sina didn't kind of point out, which is that one of the ways that white supremacy functions in the religious society of friends is that our communality is so intense, right? So Christina and I are some of the craziest, right? Before we, we were married. And then before we decided to have a child, we asked if we should try to get pregnant. Because we knew that if we had a child, we would be less available for service. And if they had said no, we wouldn't have had a kid, right? That's the far edge of it. If we mandated that everyone be as crazy as us, who's going to come on board, right? But, but I mean, that's how we are. And we encourage people to be that intense about it. Because that commitment then invites other people into that commitment to say, oh, what if I was like that? Without a, a judgy way, but what happens culturally when you have these really intense communities forming and you don't really have a shared faith commitment anymore in terms of a basis in Bible or scripture or doctrine, and you have a vague sense of goodness, that vague sense of goodness starts to look culturally a lot like whiteness. And so then what you're really committed to is a kind of sense of progressive white values. And there's a lot of conversations in the New England yearly meeting, at least that's kind of like our diocese or conference around how much of Quaker culture is essential to the Quaker faith and how much of Quaker culture is just part of momentum 
and and oppression. And we're actively having that level at the yearly meeting, having that conversation at the yearly meeting level. And it's rough. Um, but we're talking about culture and Quaker culture is sometimes challenging to pick apart because people are like, well, we helped free the slaves and we like women for a long time. Like we clearly are on the right side of history. And like those facts line up, but like that doesn't mean that you're immune to the realities of systems and structures of, you know, power. And that's a harder conversation to have with folks who can say, well, yeah, but we did that thing. <laughs> in in the, the people who are, you're hearing, a lot of these folks are aware of some of these dynamics. And part of, part of the conversation is we have to talk about our failures so we could figure out how to move. Like the, the claim isn't like, let's just skip it <laughs> and like we'll eventually get better in some magical way. But that actually the way that the spirit works is through this continuing acknowledgement of turning away from the things that are evil and into something else. Um, thoughts, comments, last pieces. We're kind of in the, 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 final, the, the final turn here, kind of themes, differences, appreciations. As a as a Protestant, uh, I I sort of lean toward more contemplative streams uh, of Christianity. So drawing off of some of the Franciscanism and just quieter, I, I think modalities sometimes speak speak to me personally. And one of the things I noticed about the pacing of the way that both you and Christina spoke on the podcast and Elizabeth as well was that there's a slowness to the way that you talked about the, the journey. And even in yours and Christina's reflections on your time with Elizabeth, there was, there was a care. Uh, there, there was a concern for, or, or attending to the language that, that seemed important in a way that a lot of the sort of hype of some of Western Christian expressions can, you can, you can lose that tenderness, I think. And so, I thought there was a beauty to to that element of it, it almost causes the listener to enter into a listening modality that that is it takes a different posture inherently just because of how it sounds and I just found that to be compelling and so I just wanted to let you know that I appreciated appreciated that that slowness hmm. it was in, inviting yeah so that's that that's one of those things that is is interesting Tim because there's a kind of Quaker culture around slowness that gets joked about, but is also a point of pride that like, you can't really push us around because the whole community needs to be clear that God's will is something before we move on it. The trick of it is if you're clear that something is the will of God, you do it immediately. Mm. And, and so that's a trick, right? Because you have this culture of slow contemplative discernment, and then sometimes if you're under the weight of it, there's powers, but the, the space of it <laughs> is how you get formed. And sometimes from that space, you need to be launched forth in different energies. Mm -hmm. And we're not always great at that second part, <laughs> which is another way in which uh, homogeneity happens, right? Everyone just quiet down, quiet down. And if someone's really angry and in his righteous anger, what do you do? You know, and that can be not, healthy sometimes. Does that track with you, Stina? It does. I, I was going to talk about something completely different, which is the earliest Quakers in the interregnum period. So this is the civil war in England, the where they deposed and killed the king. It felt like chaos and the world was falling apart. Um, that was the origin of Quakers. And they were reacting 
both politically against that and also against the Anglican church and just sort of stripping away from their church experience forms that didn't have power. So there was a really an apophatic approach, which has a lot of complementariness to a contemplative approach, a kind of a stripping away of all of the external, we talk about getting rid of the smells and bells of Christian worship. And another, uh, manifestation of that was waiting to speak until you really had something to say that was right. So uh, an integrity of speech to the point where friends were early friends were so intense in their discipline to this integrity of speech that they didn't want to say things like bless you or greet someone like good morning because they weren't sure if that person was saved and they might be speaking to someone who was in line with the adversary. And so they just, they didn't greet people or didn't greet them back. And they were seen as incredibly rude. And that was the part of forming this community that was so tight-knit and close and, and kind of separated out from the rest of society that was, um, that, that Khaled was talking about before, because there was this intense discipline around, around speech that, I think that we've inherited a little bit of it culturally. Would you say so, Khaled? Yeah, I, I think that's the case. Um, I guess maybe a good place to close um, in the next you know, few minutes here, as I know people have to go. You all have participated in kind of congregations where um, there's a kind of regularity to some of the work, right? So there's singing or preaching or uh the elements of communion wondering kind of from the outside in you know what what is it what do you think about ministry being an un a largely unpaid sometimes a kind of stipended but largely unpaid ungoal assigned task where people in communities figure out what they're supposed to do and do it as opposed to the structures of like having staffs and like what weekly things look like i mean what what's your sense of that from from the outside any kind of thoughts on that as we close out so serving as a pastor in one of the most expensive places to live in the united states um, is not sustainable i think part of it is like tying this tying the world of the church and the world of faith to commodity tying it to capitalism has just, I think has been atrocious. And so like there are people who are in miserable positions in their ministry, but they can't leave because of the damn paycheck. You know, they, they will, they have to stay because they need a place to live. They have to support their family. They need health insurance. And I think one of the realities, at least within my denomination in this part of the country, is that this is no longer feasible. This is no longer sustainable. To have, to, to interpret the ministry as a job as opposed to call, I think that's really part of what happened within at least my denomination, I think, with some pastors, is that, well, I got to get up and go to work, um, as opposed to this is call. And this is what resonates in my bones and in my heart. And so I think it's just, I really wonder what 
what it would look like to reframe what it means to be church without a paycheck, without a building to have to take care of, without a staff that you pay. And so like, those are questions that I've really been wrestling with and just kind of like looking at like, hey, you know, committees, you know, hey, a communal group to take on these things, which I know churches are supposed to be those things. But also, you know, I live in the land of spiritual, but not religious. And so it's also living into that aspect of it where, you know, you can shop for church now and then you can find the best product available and then you could just drop every other thing. And then if they don't meet your needs, you can just leave. Yeah, I think it it changes everything, (laughs) especially in the spaces that I've been in and I've served in where, I mean, and especially being in a place like seminary where it takes theology, it takes a sense of ministry and it makes it vocation. To be able to engage with the sense of leading or calling separate from this is the thing that I'm going to do that's going to provide me with enough resources to take care of my family that's going to, there is this sense of necessary exchange or necessary currency that occurs with a person providing ministerial services and then having to receive something in order to sustain their livelihood. And so the commitments and all of the different things that you have to do and give up in order to maintain that exchange in a lot of ways can take away from, is this really something that I'm called to do? And it's, it's hard even being in a place like seminary where you're dealing with people who don't think that they need to be bivocational, but also don't know, I got to find a job to feed my family and fulfill. Like now it's, a, it, they're not able to really, lean into that conversation of leadings or callings because of everything that is attached to that. So to say that there is a space where you can just serve and it's not attached to the sense of you're not getting anything for it in terms of monetary compensation or anything like that, it really changes the conversation in a way that I think can allow people to really think about how they're carrying out the concerns that they feel that they are called to do and how they are called to live into that. But also, um, I think it strips it of this expectation that your reward will be quick and hopefully every two weeks (laughs) in something that you can deposit. So I think that it's a necessary conversation that we need to have. I honestly don't know if there is enough space in the Protestant imagination to begin that conversation because the commitments that we have made. I, I just echo that. Uh, and I'll just add that probably the most common conversation I have with other pastors who are, are mainliners is the conversation around sustainability of these communities going forward. It, not only is there that, that vocational question of calling and sustainability and finances for my family, but I think in terms of the way the mainline is declining and new models that are going to have to be adopted. It, that's a that's a huge question mark, but but it's it's something that everybody's talking about. So uh, I look forward to continuing to press into that question as we as we walk together. And, and I'll just say to close off. I mean, it's interesting that the money issue became <laughs> the conversation here because it's the thing that we get asked the most about. Because friends have historically never received money, and in fact, money 
was often a marker of false ministry. But now people are saying, I can't even do, you want me to do all this work for free, but it cuts into my ability to earn. So now what? <laughs> and we used to solve that with community, right? While I was out on the road doing itinerant ministry, you took care of my farm. And when I came back, the farm was still cool. That doesn't work now. What's the model now? What does community look like now to support this? And we hear a lot from a lot of folks who feel one way or the other about this funding issue because it's so central to all of our lives, um, regardless of what denominational hole we live in. And so it seems as if maybe that's a place for us all to be kind of joining arms and, and joining thoughts in the, in the years ahead. Is like, so what, ha- what comes next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And probably hybridity of model is key and recognizing that there's already answers out there on, on, in places of, of marginality. Almost certainly there's answers out there. Um, we just need to make sure that we look there and don't try to reinvent the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, incredible gratitude to you all. Thanks, uh, Tamisha and Tim and Tahina. Really great to hear your uh, perspectives. And uh, hey, listeners, um, if you want to give a shout out to these folks, they all live on the internet as well as in places that are homes. So if you want to say hey on Facebook or Twitter, all that info is on the show notes. Um, really glad that you all could join us. And I hope you folks enjoyed listening in to the wisdom of some incredibly gifted ministers from other traditions. I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time to not only be with us today, but also to listen to the episodes uh, with enough care and attention to be able to have conversations and ask questions. So thanks. That means a lot. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for the invitation. And looking forward to continuing the conversation. I think it it doesn't end here. Well, folks, thanks for being a different kind of family.